So a few weeks ago, we began this series that we are calling Do-Over, the God of Second Chances, because we want to understand that the God of Christianity is a God of second chances. So we began at the very beginning. We looked at the story of Adam and Eve, and we saw how they had been given everything. They had very simple instructions. They had one job, and yet somehow they managed to blow it, right? The one thing that they were not supposed to do is the thing that they did, and I think uh, many of us can relate to that, right? We, we know the things that we should do, and we, uh, we don't do them, and we know the things that we shouldn't do, and we do them anyway. But even after that, even after having very explicit instructions, God gave them a second chance. He gave them grace, and He gave them mercy, and He gave them a new shot at life. And then we looked at the story of King David, uh, who Scripture tells us is a man after God's own heart, and yet he was a deeply, deeply flawed man. Uh, he became too comfortable in his position, and he became too comfortable with his power and his authority, and he did some things that were just awful and horrible. Um, and yet, when he repented, when he admitted of his sins, when he asked God to um, forgive him, God showed him grace, and God showed him mercy, and, and God even took care of the other people in his life that uh, he had hurt, and he gave them second chances as well. Um, and and this, these are stories from the Old Testament in, in which the portraits of God are often um, more harsh sometimes than the portraits of God that we see in the New Testament. Um, so today, we are going to take a look at three stories from the New Testament that illustrate this very same principle, that the God of Christianity is a God of second chances. And so, I'm going to go a little bit old school in this sermon. I, I usually only do one-point sermons, but, but I'm going to do a three-point alliterated sermon, just like, uh, you know, they, they used to do. Um, so, we've, I'm calling this one Peter, Paul, and the Prodigal. All right, I got the, got the three Ps there. Uh, I, I normally only do one story, but the theme of these three stories is so similar, I thought it would be, it would be good to uh, talk about them uh, all, it, all at once. So um, I know what some of you are thinking, three stories, this is going to go really long. I'm going to try to keep it under two hours this morning. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, as a matter of fact, these three stories are stories that we've actually talked about uh, within the past year and a half as we've done some other sermons. So for those of you who have here, it's going to sound familiar, but they're also stories that I think are familiar enough that even if you're not, um, uh, you know, a, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard of these people. You've probably heard of these stories. This is probably some familiar stuff for you. So I'm going to kind of go through them a little quickly, but I'm, I'm working on the premise that most of you are probably familiar. But if not, I'll try to give at least enough background that you can track. So we're going to start with Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' earliest and closest followers. If you read through the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories that tell the story of Jesus' life, you see that Peter plays a very prominent role from very, very early on. He's one of the first disciples that Jesus calls, and he becomes one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his most trusted companions. And he, he sort of, he's the one that Jesus even says, I'm go, you know, uh, you're going to take the reins of, of the church. Um, and yet we also see that throughout the stories in the Gospels, that Peter is sort of an impetuous man. He's impulsive. Uh, he's sometimes moody, right? Um, he, he sometimes acts before he thinks. I don't know if you can relate with that, but I certainly can. Um, I can tend to be a little impetuous, a little impulsive at times, um, so I can, I can relate with Peter. Sometimes I, I act first, and then I think later, and um, sometimes I, I feel like Jesus just sort of shakes his head at me the way he probably shook his head at Peter when he did some things. But, but like Peter, I like to think that my heart's in the right place. We read the story of Peter, and we see he's doing what he's doing because his heart is generally in the right place. Um, 
Peter is, is very faithful, and he's very devoted to Jesus. As a matter of fact, um, he, he's one of the ones that Jesus brings with him when he doesn't even bring all of the 12. He's sort of in a unique group of three. He's the one that Jesus brings up on the, on the mount when there's that whole crazy story of the transfiguration. Um, just a very faithful and devoted follower of Jesus. And yet, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Peter abandons Jesus He's the one who loses faith and gives up on Jesus. You see, leading up to Jesus' arrest, Jesus uh, is telling his followers, he says, here's what's going to happen to me. He says, I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be put to death, and you all are going to scatter. And Peter says, not me, Lord. No way. No way. I'm going to follow you all the way unto death. Whatever happens to you, Lord, is going to happen to me. There's no way I'm ever going to turn my back on you, Jesus. But then, a few hours later, if you're familiar with the story, here's how Mark tells it. Mark, actually, we believe, is, uh, was Peter's companion and translator later on in life. He was the one who helped translate uh, some of Peter's works. And we believe that the gospel of Mark is sort of the memoirs of Peter's life. So you can imagine, you know, Mark is sitting down with Peter, and Peter is telling the story time and time again. And he's sharing his own experience of the, of the day that he gave up on Jesus Mark says it this way. He says, when Peter was below in the courtyard, this is after Jesus had been arrested. um, He was on trial for crimes that uh, they said he committed. uh, And Peter followed behind at a distance waiting to see what had happened. And says, while he was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. And at this point, Peter could have lived up to his, his promise, right? He could have said, yeah, I was with him, and I'm going to follow him even to the death. But he didn't. He denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. He denied even knowing Jesus. After following him from anywhere from six months to three years, the, the dating is, is different depending on which gospel you look at. But, but a period of time being one of his closest followers, he denies even knowing Jesus. Story continues. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he what? Denied it. He denied even knowing him. Again, After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Not only did he deny it, here's what Mark tells us. He began to call down curses. Right? This is pretty serious. He began to call down curses, and then he swore to them. He swore. Not just, nah, yeah, yeah, he might look familiar, but I don't think I know him. He swore. I swear I don't know that guy. I swear I've got nothing to do with him. I don't know this man. I don't know what you're talking about, he says. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. After that, he left and Jesus was crucified all alone. And Peter and his disciples went into hiding. The point I'm trying to make here is Peter lost his faith. Peter lost his faith. Now, this is, this is somebody who walked side by side with Jesus for months, if not for years. And then tragedy hits. 
And Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest companions, loses his faith, essentially turns his back on Jesus. And in hindsight, as we read the story, it's easy for us to be critical of Peter, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, oh, well, I never would have done that. But I think if we're honest and we think about our own life and we think about pain that we've experienced and tragedies that we've witnessed, we have experienced things that have caused us to question and to doubt whether what we believe about Jesus is true, whether what we believe about God really is true. We lose a loved one unexpectedly in tragedy. We see the horrors going on in the world and we start to think, where is God in all of this? Maybe what I believe is true. Maybe you grew up in a religious system that taught you certain things about what God was like. And then when you experience life and life didn't match up with the system that you were brought up in, you start to question what you believe and whether you believe anything at all. And, and for some of us, you know, maybe you grew up with, a, with a, a faith that was sort of built on a house of cards. And if one of those cards is pulled out, everything comes crashing down and you start to doubt everything all at once. Peter lost his faith. But before we're too critical, we have to remember that it's not, we're just one tragedy away. We're just one bad circumstance away from potentially ending up in the same position as Peter, abandoning our faith because of something that we see that doesn't match up with how we think it ought to be. You know, I see this all the time as I've done work in hospice and the, the hospital and with soldiers and, and with hospice, I see that few things in life test our faith like personal tragedies, like seeing someone that we love either go through a tragedy or pass away or have something unexpected happen to them. These things cause us to question what we believe, and it happened to Peter. Peter lost his faith. But Jesus took him back. As you continue on with the story, you, you realize that not only did Jesus take Peter back, but he restored him completely. And not only did he restore him completely, but he promoted him. To, he put him in charge of the entire operation. Right? We would, we would understand if Jesus said, hey man, you had your shot. You said you were going to follow me and things got tough and you fell away. I'm going to find somebody else. I'm going to find somebody who's going to stick with me this time. But he didn't. He took Peter and he restored him. And he promoted him, and he put him in charge of the operation. Peter lost his faith, but Jesus took him back. Maybe you or someone you know have lost your faith, or you're wrestling with your faith, and you don't understand, you don't know what you believe in. Maybe you've gotten angry with God. Maybe what you thought should happen, you, you, you've experienced something in your own life or the life of a loved one, and you're mad at God because you think this isn't the way that it should be. Maybe that anger with God has caused you to, to hide away in guilt. And you think, well, well, I'm not supposed to be mad at God. I'm not supposed to give up. And so you think, well, well I, I had my shot. I had my chance, and I gave up. Well, if that's you, then I want you to know from the story of Peter that Jesus, he's there, and he's waiting. He's, he's willing to take you back. And not only to take you back, but to give you a future and to give you hope. If Jesus gave Peter a second shot who walked side by side with him for months if not years, if he gave Peter a second shot, he can give you a second shot as well. So that's Peter. Now we're going to move on to Paul. 
Paul was an early church leader in the first century, the Apostle Paul. He traveled across the Mediterranean basin, planting churches throughout the Roman Empire. He wrote half of what we uh, call the New Testament today. But it wasn't always that way. As a matter of fact, Paul wasn't always a Christian. In fact, in his previous life, he persecuted Christians, even unto death. Here's how he stated it in his own words in one letter. He says this, For you have heard of my former life, he writes to the Christians living in Galatia. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to what? Destroy it. How intensely I persecuted and tried to destroy it. In other words, Paul had a past. And it was a past that was full of violence. And it was full of religious fundamentalism, which led him to that violence. Paul had a past, but Jesus gave him a future. Here's how Paul says it in his own words. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? People who have it all together? People who've cleaned up their own lives before they come to God? People who've only made minor mistakes? No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul says, I am the what? Worst. He, he goes on, he says, but for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul is saying is if Jesus could give even me a second chance, he says, the rest of you is no problem. Paul says, I was so bad, my persecution of the church, my violence was so severe that if Jesus could show mercy to me and give me a second chance, there's no way that he won't do the same for you. That's what Paul is saying. So maybe you have a past. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've been. You don't know the people I've hurt. You don't know the things that I've been, the places that I've been, the things that I've done. Paul says, I'm the worst. And he says, you know what? I may not know what you've done. It, it, nobody else may know what you've done, but you know what? Jesus does. Jesus, Jesus knows, right? You can't hide that from him. He knows what you've done. He knows where you've been. He knows the people you've hurt. Paul says, he can do it for me. He can do it for you. There's no such thing as too far gone. Leads us to the prodigal. The first two stories were stories of real-life people, Peter and Paul, real-life people living in the first century in ancient uh, Palestine. The prodigal, you've probably heard of the story of the prodigal son, is a story that Jesus tells. It's a parable. Parables were stories with a point. And, and the point of this story that Jesus tells is to illustrate what God is really like. To illustrate what God is really like. So here's how the story goes. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, when he says this, what the, what the son is saying, the younger son is saying to the father is, Dad, I wish you were dead. 
right? Just pretend like you're dead and give me what's coming to me. Give me what's mine. And the father does it. He divided his property between them. Imagine the heartbreak in the father to hear that from his son, that his son wanted his money more than he wanted his dad, right? And yet the father gives it to him anyway. Story goes on, says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. If you use your imagination, you can sort of picture what that would be like in today's culture. It'd be, he probably went off to Vegas, right? Just partied it up, squandered his wealth in wild living. This is where we actually get the term prodigal from, if you didn't know that. Prodigal means reckless or wasteful. That's why we call him the prodigal son, because he was reckless and wasteful with his inheritance. Squandered it in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. This is, for, for the ancient Jews who heard this story, this would have basically been rock bottom. Right? This is about as low as you can go. To go from being the heir of a wealthy landowner to feeding pigs who were viewed by the Jews as unclean. This is, this is basically as low as you can go. He had hit rock bottom. It says he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. His search for the pleasures of this life had left him feeling empty and alone. I love how the next verse begins. It says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. So he devises a plan. He's like, what am I going to do to get myself out of this situation? He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, there are different scholars who interpret this different ways, you know, you, and you can decide for yourself, was he sincere? Did, did he really come to his senses? Was he really repentant of what he had done? Or was he just trying to figure out a way to sneak his way back into his father's life? I tend to think that by the time he had hit rock bottom, he had sort of realized he had woken up to uh, where his decisions had gotten him, and he decided it was time to make a, make a change. But he begins to think that he had to earn his way back into his father's favor. He didn't believe that he could just go to his father uh, uh, and be restored. He believed that he had to earn his way back. How, how many of us sometimes feel that way about God? We, we make a mistake and we feel like we have to earn our way back into God's favor. That's why I love what comes next. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and said, How dare you show your face around here again? You had your chance and you blew it. You're on your own now. Those of you who have read the story, you know that's not how it goes. But if we're honest, how many of us think that maybe the Father should have responded that way? How many of us would respond that way if someone did that to us? If your kids or your siblings or your friends just wanted your stuff more than they wanted you and they abandoned you and, and took everything you had and then ran off and they came running back, how many of us would be tempted to respond in this way? Right? This seems, this seems reasonable. 
right? This seems logical. He had a chance. He had everything. He blew it. How dare you come back? But here's how the story really goes. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with what? Compassion for him. He ran to his son. And this is a big deal, right? Because wealthy landowners don't run for anything. He ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. Just, just welcome him back home. You, you can picture it, right? Picture, picture this in a movie scene, right? He's sitting in his house. Picture like a long, winding driveway coming up to this, this farmhouse, and you, and you see this, this silhouette of somebody starting to walk, and you see this, you know, the dad wonder, oh, is that, could that, could that be him? Is, it, is that my son who ran away? As it gets closer, you begin to realize that, uh, you know, the, the, the camera sort of zooms in and the dad realizes that it's him. And he, he gets up from his armchair, right, sets down the newspaper and his cup of coffee. Maybe he, he just drops it and it spills on the floor because he's so excited to see his son. And he runs out and he just throws his arm around him because the one that he thought, he didn't know what had happened to him. And now he's back. Remember, the point of this story, the reason Jesus told this story is to illustrate what God is really like. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father says, yeah, you're right, but I guess you can stay. No. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and what? Celebrate. Celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, if we're honest, some of us probably think that it was the father who was prodigal. Right? The father who was reckless and wasteful in his love, just pouring it out on somebody who didn't deserve it. Somebody who had squandered everything and came crawling back, and he's just giving him even more. Some of us think that the father is the one who was reckless in his love and wasteful. Because the son didn't deserve that. But isn't that just the point? Isn't that the point of the story? In the story, the father represents God. The prodigal son represents sinners. People who have turned their back on God and have tried to live life their own way. In this case, in the audience Jesus is talking to, it represents people who grew up in Jewishness. Going to synagogue probably had been taught better and squandered it anyway. And Jesus is telling this story to religious people who think that people who have turned their back on God don't deserve grace, don't deserve mercy, don't deserve this love of God. That it, it, so hearing this story, they would have heard this father is reckless and wasteful. But I think the story is important because so many people have run away from God. And they've stayed away from God because they have this picture in their mind of God, of a God who's angry and vindictive and vengeful, and that if I go back to God, well, he's just going to punish me. 
And some people have that view of God because it's what they've been taught in church growing up. I'll never forget the story. You've heard me tell before about a, a woman I met in Austin, Texas a few years ago. And we sat down at a table, we started talking with her, and she had, to- she had told us the story about how she had grown up going to church, and she had sort of slid away to pursue other things, and, and she had this desire to go back to God, but she had been taught that God was this angry, vindictive, vengeful God who was, who was waiting to punish her. And that, that, that view of God that she had kept her at a distance. It, it kept her from coming back. And when we, began, when we began to explain to her that that's not what God is like, that God is a loving Heavenly Father waiting with open arms to welcome her back. She just began to cry. She began to understand that God was a God who loved her and was waiting with open arms to welcome her back and throw her a party. I want you to hear this if, if this if this is you, if, if you have been living a life pursuing your own pleasures and it's leaving you feeling empty and alone and you think that God is angry with you, God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you. He loves you. He longs for you. He's waiting for you with open arms and a great big party. So here's the bottom line. There's no such thing is too far gone. The God of Christianity is a God of second chances. There's no such thing as too far gone. If you used to believe, but something has happened and, and you lost your faith and you're wondering, well, can, can I believe again? Can I, can I come back? If, if I used to believe and I, and I didn't for a while, but I want to again, is there even room for me here? Yes. Yes. There is room for you here. And there's space to figure it out. Jesus will take you back. May even promote you. Be careful. If you've got a past that you're ashamed of, if you think, you don't know what I've done, you don't know where I've been, I want you to think about Paul. There's no past that's too serious that God can't give you a new future and a second chance. If you've been chasing the pleasures of life and it has left you empty and alone and you're wondering if there's any room for you at the table again, the answer is yes. Because the God of Christianity is a God of second chances. He's a God who's waiting with open arms and a great big party and he wants to celebrate you. And he wants to give you a new chance and a new hope, and a new life, and a bright future. So I don't care where you've been, I don't care what you've done, these stories and so many more show us that the God of Christianity is a God of second chances. And he's just waiting and wanting and longing to pour out his reckless love on you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for the story of Peter, who walked side by side with Jesus and yet lost his faith. But Jesus took him back. I thank you for the story of Paul, who had a past that none of us can hardly even imagine, a past filled with violence, and yet you gave him a future. God, I thank you for this story of the prodigal son that illustrates your true hearts for your people. That you're not a God who's sitting up distant, angry, vengeful, vindictive, 
that you're a God just waiting and longing and, and searching and, and hoping that we'll come back ready with open arms and a great big party. God, for those who are hearing this message who need to hear that you are gracious and loving and kind, that no matter where they are or what they've done, that you would just remind them and impress upon their hearts that no matter what they've done or where they've been, you are a God of second chances. I thank you for this truth. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy and forgiveness in my own life and everyone who watches this. That if there's somebody somewhere waiting, thinking that there's no other place for them to go, that you would tell them that there is a place for them here among your family, in your house, as your child. Thank you, God, for your reckless love. In Jesus' name.